remember when you would buy a video game, it would come in a nice little package and it would have this really cool instruction manual and there would be like cool art in there, there would be some backstory to the game, there would be tips on how to play. And these things were so nice, I would like collect them and sometimes I would just sit there and read through my instruction manuals because they were so nice. Now you buy a game, it doesn't even come in a box, you buy it digitally, you don't even buy a cartridge or a disc anymore. And uh, you're like, why are you ranting about this, Alex? Well, I'm 40 and things used to be better when I was a kid. I'm old enough now to be like, back in my day, things used to be good, you know? Now I'm old and everything's wrong. <laughs> things are different and when you get old, you realize that things change. And one of the things you realize is, you don't change as much as you thought you were going to. Like I'm really a lot like that kid buying a video game, but the world has changed a lot around me. It's changed dramatically. Uh, j just to take a look at a picture here. Go ahead, Keen. This was 17 years ago. What was, what's a soul patch? What was I thinking? Yeah, I'm actually not that different from that person. I'd probably have a soul patch if it wasn't for Darby. And what is this picture where I'm like, I've got the flash camera and I'm like, this looks really cool. Like I'm shooting a laser out of my hands. Loser, you know? It's hard to believe Darby uh, dated me just a few years after that picture. What's that? Yeah. And look at the name of the album when I posted it. Unjustified nonsense. Who writes like that? <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> Nerd. Um, last week I kicked off a new series about finding meaning and purpose in midlife because in just a sh few short weeks I'm going to be 40 years old. And midlife is a time when people wrestle with happiness and purpose, a sense of meaning. And that's not just my opinion. That's not just some subjective thing where I'm like, people in midlife seem to struggle with this. This is scientific fact. Scientific research has shown that somewhere between, uh, or somewhere around 45 people are the most unhappy they will ever be in life. And this is regardless of economics or education, where you're born or uh, what your life has been. I think we have a picture here. Yeah, before you, your happiness starts to climb back after 45, between 45 and 50, you start an incline back up. And most people are at peak happiness again around 70 or even higher happiness than they had when they were younger. Research has shown that this phenomenon applies to every single human being on earth, regardless of nationality, religion, economics, or education level. In fact, a researcher, Alexander Weiss of the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh tracked this same phenomenon in great, great apes, orangutans, and chimpanzees. Even they have life happiness in a U. And so if right now you're feeling a little bit like, man, I'm headed into my 40s or I'm in my 40s and you feel unhappy, you're just a statistic. Like that's everybody. Life happiness is in a you. Around 20, we're at peak happiness. So if you're younger than 20, you're heading towards one of the happiest moments in your life. And then after that, your happiness is going to take a deep slide until 45, which is the low point. And then in your 40s, you're going to start changing direction and becoming happy again. If you're in your late 20s and you're feeling less and less happy every year, guess what everybody does? Don't be surprised, this is part of the human condition. If you're in your 40s and you think, I've never been more unhappy in my life, guess what, that's how everybody feels. But there's better things ahead. Life happiness is in a you, and many times the back, um, many, what the researchers found was the back rise is actually leads to deeper happiness than the front rise of happiness. Okay, 
So it is easy, though, when each year you feel a little more unhappy to become apathetic. To just be like, if each year I'm going to feel a little bit more unhappy than I did the last year, why am I trying? Why am I working hard? What's the point? Remember, last week I said that most of us are becoming a person by default rather than by design. We're just kind of like bumping down the river and we're like, wherever I end up, you know. Um, we have to become people by design if we want to become people of love because our default is towards anxiety and angst and apathy. It's not towards love. And I argued last week that the greatest treasure in life is to become like Jesus and to find contentment. If you find those things, your life will have meaning. It will have a sense of purpose. You will be content. And I said we cannot will ourselves to be content. It's not like you can wake up and be like, I'm really going to be content today. I'm really not going to be unhappy. I'm really not going to think about everything I don't have and everything I want. I'm just going to will myself and do it. That doesn't work. But what we can't do by trying, we can do by training. And one of the spiritual practices that I think will help train us and help develop the muscles to find contentment is the idea of spiritual indifference. Now, that term sounds kind of weird to us. We're like, indifference, isn't that the same as apathy? Um, the, the idea of spiritual indifference was coined by Ignatius of Loyola. Um, St. Ignatius was born in 1491. As a young man, he was like, I want to be a knight. I want to be like this famous knight going around and doing adventures and quests. But in 1522, he was gravely wounded in battle. And while recuperating, he experienced a conversion. He put his faith in Jesus and his whole life changed. Reading the life of Jesus and the life of other saints made Ignatius happy and excited to do great things. No longer great things for him, but great things for God. And he realized that this, this feeling, this desire, this passion were clues to God's direction for his life. And so he became an, uh, an expert in the art of spiritual formation. Essentially, the spiritual practices, the training that helps us to become like Jesus. And he collected his insights and his prayers and his suggestions in a book called The Spiritual Exercises. This is what Ignatius said. Human freedom is the room to grow in relationship with God and to share in God's redemptive work. He says this internal freedom is indifference, the ability to be detached enough from things and people or experiences to be able to take them up or leave them aside depending on whether or not they help us to praise, revere, and serve God. In other, way, in other words, what Ignatius is saying is spiritual indifference is the capacity to let go of what doesn't help us love God or love others while staying deeply engaged with what does. Indifference does not mean that you don't care about stuff. Have you ever done that where you're like, you, you act like you don't care? You're like, you really want to win the game? You're like, I don't care, whatever. But you're like, I have to win. But you're trying to like convince yourself you don't care. Um, indifference doesn't mean not caring at all. One can be indifferent and yet deeply passionate. In fact, since God is love and God's redemptive work in the world takes place through love, we cannot be indifferent in the Ignatian sense unless we love and love deeply. Now, Ignatius says, here's some of the things we need to be detached from. He names attachment to wealth, health, long life, and status as the most common obstacles, obstacles to becoming people of love. Let me say that again. Attachment to wealth, health, long life, and status are your biggest obstacles in life to keep you from becoming people of love. He encouraged letting go of these attachments, all while encouraging attachment to God, to people, and to beauty. Indifference says, I have worth apart from the things I have or the people in the world that are present or absent from my life. 
God loves me as I am with all my talents, with all my quirks, with all my failings. I am enough for God, and God is enough for me, whether or not I succeed or fail at that, whether or not that brings me a lot of praise or no praise, whether or not I look foolish or good. When God's love is at the core of our identity, then I can attentively be aware that I have the capacity to love no matter where life takes me. In life, there's always things we want to turn out a certain way. I mean, that's just human nature. We, we want things to go a certain way. We're like, I don't want to be unmarried at this age, or I don't want to be without kids at this age, or I don't want to lose my spouse at this age. We have hopes and ambitions and dreams. And uh, sometimes Christians are real funny about ambition. As soon as you say something like, I want to be the best at this, Christians are like, mm-mm, pride. You know, we, we kind of act weird about ambition, as if working hard and achieving something isn't humble. Um, my seminary professor used to joke that evangelical Christians were addicted to mediocrity. They're like, as long as you're just mediocre, you're perfect. Like, that's exactly where Christianity wants you, as if it was a sin to aim any higher than average. That's not what we're talking about with indifference. You can still aim high, but your world isn't in ruins when you don't make it. In fact, the New Testament commands ambition. Let's look at three verses here. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You don't hear a lot of people saying, What's your ambition? To lead a quiet life. I just want it to be quiet. You should mind your own business. You should work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent on anybody. Romans 15, 20. It's always been Paul's ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. He's like, I don't want to go where it's easy. My ambition is to go where no one's gone before. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our ambition to please Jesus, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, whether we're living or dead, our ambition is to please Jesus. So ambition isn't bad if it's kingdom ambition instead of selfish ambition. And the deciding factor is our motivation. Why are we doing what we're doing? Take, for instance, me starting this church. Starting a church has to be a kingdom ambition, right? Well, when I get really honest, I was starting this church in obedience to Jesus. Uh, Darby and I can tell the story like we felt clearly God was telling us to come here and do this. But I was working really hard to grow my church because I wanted my name to be respected and revered. In fact, when we first moved up for the first couple of years, I was ignoring my wife. I was working long hours and failing to slow down and spend time with God because I wanted to be acknowledged and admired for the incredible results my church plant was producing. I was being a, the opposite of a person of love, all while saying I was pursuing a kingdom ambition. Now what I want, what I want out of life is the ability to dream big, but not suffer a devastating crash when my dreams aren't fully realized or when they're realized in a way that I didn't hope they would be. Horizon doesn't look like what I hoped it would. Um, I wanted it to be big. I wanted to be considered successful and intelligent and wise. I wanted people to call me up and be like, Alex, you've been so intelligent, successful and wise. Tell me all your secrets. Like just share with me your wisdom. That doesn't happen when you have a handful of people on a second floor of an art center. Um, they're just not interested in what I have to say, you know? Um, now though, that's what I wanted, but now what I want is to become the kind of person that can remain obedient even when my ambition doesn't turn out how I want it. I think spiritual indifference is the key to becoming that kind of person. Now, 
Indifference might sound a lot like detachment from Buddhism, but indifference is not Buddhist rejection of attachments. Here's the difference. Buddhism teaches that we should have no attachments because attachments are the root of suffering. They encourage the followers of their faith to practice letting go of everything, let go of family, let go of beauty, let go even the idea of self. Um, that's how Buddhism sells, solves the problem of suffering. They say, guess what? You can't suffer because you don't exist. There you go. Uh, it's kind of like when I tell my daughter she wants something, and I'm like, no, you don't. And she's like, I want it. I say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Just telling yourself you don't exist doesn't make the pain go away. Um, that's not how Christian contentment works. It's not how spiritual indifference works. Instead, Christian indifference calls us to care deeply, to work hard, to have big kingdom ambitions, but not to fall apart when it doesn't turn out like we hoped. Not to fall apart when our dreams fail, because Jesus, King Jesus, is still on his throne. His coming kingdom is still coming when all wrongs will be set right. Apathy says, I'm not going to even try because I will probably fail. Or it says, I tried before and I failed, so I'm not going to give more than 5% going forward. I'm going to do the bare minimum. Why expend energy when I might not get the results that I want? Anybody else ever be guilty of that? Be like, I worked really hard and it didn't turn out great, so why work hard again? I'm the only one. That's okay. Um, <laughs> indifference says something different. It says, if I try and I fail, it doesn't make me a failure. I have everything I need to be content. Jesus, King Jesus is still coming. He still loves me. My identity based in his love hasn't changed, and I still have the capacity to love others whether or not I succeed or fail at this. That's what I want. Because I'll tell you right now, a lot of times when I work really hard at something and it is not wildly successful and I have a very high standard of success, um, I'm like, well, fine. Why am I even putting forth any effort? What's the point? I don't want to be that way. I want to be able to say this is still worth doing. As we said last week, apathy is easy. After all, all you do with apathy is do nothing. And man, are, aren't we good at that? I'm good at that. Apathy, anxiety, and angst are our human default settings. But Ignatian spiritual difference is hard. Indifference forces you to evaluate who you are and why, why what you value. Um, what, sorry, I can't read my own notes. Indifference forces you to evaluate who you are and why your value matters more than, who, than what you have and what you accomplish. Indifference says... My obedience, my faithfulness is not dependent on my preferred outcomes. I'm not going to be obedient as long as I get what I want out of it. I don't do it just to get the results I want. I do it because it's right. I do it because God asked me to. I do it because it serves someone else. I do it because it's worth doing even if I don't see the results I want. And even though Ignatius coined the term 500 years ago, Christians have been practicing this idea for thousands of years. Here's the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 11. I'm not saying this to you because I'm in need, because I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed, whether hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now, I think Paul here is cluing us in on some key ideas about contentment and how to develop spiritual indifference in our lives. Notice first what he says. Contentment is learned. Paul didn't wake up one day and he's like, you know what? 
It's been a few years. I've been going to church, reading my Bible, praying some. I'm content now. It just happened. You know, I woke up and God flipped the switch. I've been waiting for it to happen, and now I'm content. Contentment is learned. It's not going to happen to us passively. Learning requires active participation on our part. Two kids can sit in the same class. One learns a lot and one learns nothing because one is daydreaming or doodling or like playing on their phone, right? And then the other one is actively engaged. Which one are we going to be? God is wanting to teach us contentment, but we can choose whether or not to be an active or passive participant in that education. Apathy is a lack of engagement as a consequence of disappointing results. Contentment, though, must be actively pursued. Next notice, Paul says that he learned contentment through his experiences. He's like, look, I've had a lot. I've had a little. I've had enough to eat. I haven't had enough. He learned through his experiences, experiences of both getting what he wanted and being denied what he wanted. Oftentimes when I get what I've been praying for and hoping for and longing for, I'm like, thank you, God, for teaching me contentment because now I have everything I need. But you know what? He doesn't just teach it through the moments when you get what you want. He teaches it in the moments when you don't have what you want. The moments where you beg with him and plead with him and say, why don't I have this? Why hasn't this come? Why haven't you given me this? Why is there this empty hole? That is also a moment to learn contentment. You need both in order to become content. I don't like those moments. But looking back, I can thank God for those moments because they're part of the process of learning to be content. Learning requires, oh, I already said that. I'm all over my notes today, sorry. Um, he learned this through experiences. Now, when we hear the word learn, we think of schools and tests. In fact, I just used an example of school. But you can't cram experience. Anybody ever cram for a test? You're like, well, I didn't study all semester, but it's tomorrow, so I gotta cram it in. Yeah, I did that a few times. Um, stayed up really late, drank a lot of coffee, and tried to learn all the information that should have been spread out over months in four hours, you know, eight hours, whatever. You can't cram experiences because experiences happen in time. You learn it with your body, not just your head. You can cram information in your head, but you can't cram experiences into your body. They happen slowly, one at a time. Contentment is learned not through lectures, but in life. Contentment requires supernatural strength. He says that. He says, the reason I've got through this is because Jesus gives me strength. He's the one who gives me strength. We cannot save ourselves. We need Jesus. Neither can we will ourselves into contentment. We position ourselves to learn. Um, we do what we can to pursue contentment, and then we have to wait and ask and want supernatural aid to give us what we cannot earn or produce. We cannot be truly content until our hearts find our rest in God. All the things that human beings chase, and everyone out here is chasing something. Every one of us is chasing something, looking for contentment. Everything humans chase can't bring contentment if God isn't part of the formula and the priority of our pursuits. God will not supernaturally empower a pursuit towards ruin, and a lot of times we're running towards something that will never bring us contentment, and we're asking God to bless it. We have to get honest about where we are headed, why we are headed that way if we want his aid. And we cannot have contentment without a supernatural aid. We have to ask ourselves, does this help me love God and love others better? Or is this about my appearance? Is this about my security? Is this about my happiness? Is this something I should be asking God to help me let go instead of something I should ask him to give me right now? 
contentment in this last verse we see he, he he's writing to the church at philippians and he says thank you it was good of you to share in my troubles to reach out and become a part of my pain contentment is ultimately driven by compassion you were created by a uh by a being of love in order to be a being of it, of love i'm here to change the world you are too every single one of us are we change the world through our love so often I get caught up in wanting to do something big and fly. I want to write a book, and it changes churches all across the world, and everybody remembers my name. Oh, that's back to appearance and status and about me, right? We change the world with how we love the few people we interact with closest in our life. That's how you will change the world with your love. You're loved by God, and that gives you the security to love others who need we will not be content until we spend our lives on what we were designed to do when we spend our lives on loving people. So what happens when we work hard and your selfish ambition is not fulfilled? What happens when you're like, man, I really want this thing for me, and I worked really hard and I didn't get it? Most of us quit. I mean, that's just honest. Or we quiet quit. Um, anybody familiar with the phrase quiet quitting? The phrase was coined after the pandemic by Brian Creeley. He's a Nashville-based corporate recruiter turned career coach. In March of 2022, he posted a video using the term on TikTok. Um, and now the term's everywhere. Like, if you just Google it, there's like 100 articles about it. And all the time, people are like, oh, I'm sorry, my restaurant's not staffed. Everybody's quiet quitting, you know? Proverbs 13, 12 says, when you really hope for something and it doesn't happen, it makes you heart sick. Man, there's, there's probably no truer verse in the Bible than that. And I've felt that. But when a dream is fulfilled, it's like eating from the tree of life in Eden. Man, I, I go back to this verse over and over again in my life because there's days where it feels like I am heartsick because something I hoped for and I longed for and I wanted is not here. And then there's days when I feel like everything I prayed for and wanted came and it feels like i'm in the garden of eden standing in the presence of god enjoying abundant life but being heart sick heart sick makes us quiet quit man i have tongue-tied like every sentence in this sermon th this morning yes i'm gonna say a toddler dad she was up at 1 30 for a while um being heart sick makes us quiet quit and quiet quitting means doing the minimum requirements of one's job and putting in no more time, no more effort, or no more enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. A 2022 Gallup survey suggested that at least half of the U.S. workforce consists of quiet quitters. I won't make you raise your hand if you're quiet quitting right now. Um, another word for quiet quitting would be apathy. Darby, don't raise your hand. Um, our job didn't fulfill our ambitions so we just stopped trying and i just have to get real honest have i been quiet quitting horizon this year um it certainly feels that way like if you look from the outside of my life it probably looks that way have i stopped trying because i got tired of being disappointed by a lack of results probably if i'm really going to be honest with you yes I've been doing my bare minimum. I haven't been giving you my best. I haven't been giving God my best. I've been quiet quitting. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, and I'm sorry, you. Um, it's not an excuse. 
but I think it's an explanation. It's been an incredibly hard year. You know that. I had a Vespa accident in January. I rushed back as quickly as I could because that's who I am. Um, but my back and my knees and my ankles still aren't as strong as they used to be. I moved slower, and the concussion made it harder than ever to form sentences and sermons that are insightful and moving. Um, I just feel like I get tongue-tied a lot easier than I ever have before. Listening back to messages, I stutter over words more. I struggle to find my next thought. It makes me feel insecure and not confident. And emotionally, spiritually, this has been the hardest year of my life. Our daughter came to us, and it was 10 years of prayers and longings, and then she was taken away, and it felt like someone had ripped my soul out of my body, and I was a dead, lifeless husk. And then she came back, which was wonderful and has been everything I've always wanted out of life. But the emotions of that year just don't go away. My, they're still in my body, and I'm still processing, processing them in my mind and in my soul. It's a roller coaster of emotions that I'm still working through. And I think, honestly, I was just beat down, and I gave very little to you this year, and I'm sorry. Our first year at Horizon, we saw one person baptized, and then the next year we saw two, and then three, and then four, and I was like, I love this pattern. Let's just keep it going. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and we've had none. We seem to grow to a certain size, and then a block of people move away, and it feels like starting over. People come for a while and then disappear forever, and they don't respond to texts or emails, and I'm like, what happened to them? They're, they're still posting on social media. They're alive, but I don't know. I reach out. I'm like, did I say something wrong? Did I upset you in some way? And it's just like they ghost us. It's not how I wanted things to go. It's not how I imagined it going. And because so often it was about my own selfish ambition, I just decided I'm not going to put in a lot of effort because it's not worth it. It's not worth it to get hurt again. So am I going to quit Horizon? No. Um, the God who told me to come hasn't told me to go. If I came only to satisfy my ambition and my ego, I should pack my bags and find something bigger to do because this isn't making me look good. This isn't like uh, good on a ministry resume. This isn't making me feel good. I come in here some Sundays and I leave and I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm grateful for that one person who came today because without them, it would have been nobody. Um, but if I came to be obedient... I should remain obedient regardless of the results. There's more to life than looking good or feeling good. I want to be obedient and learn to be indifferent about the results. I want to give the same effort and energy to my messages, to standing up here, whether I'm preaching to three people or 300 or 3,000. I want to say, have the same emotional levelness, whether people love it or hate it, whether they walk away and say that was the best thing they ever heard, whether they walk away and say, Alex, you missed it. That was terrible. That was the worst message I've ever heard you preach. Whether they clap or fall asleep, I want to find my satisfaction and my stability in the silent, unseen applause of Jesus. I want to hold things tightly that help me love people, that help me love God more, and hold loosely things that are about making me look good or propping up a false image of strength that I try to project in order to hide my insecurities. Often what we're most afraid of in failure is people seeing past our masks and seeing us for who we really are. I don't like writing messages like this because I don't like you seeing me for who I really am. 
I'd much rather put on a nice pastor mask. Be like, I got it all together. Look how spiritually mature and wise I am. Don't you want to call me up and ask about my intelligence and wisdom and knowledge? No, like I'm human and I fail and I have failed you this year and I'm sorry. But there can be no intimacy without honesty and so I'm being honest. We love weekly when we live behind a mask because honesty is key to love. I want to end with four questions for you to think about this week. Where have you been quiet quitting in your life? Maybe in your job, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your faith, maybe somewhere else. Where are you disappointed in your story? Take some time to think about why you're disappointed with that. Be honest with yourself and be honest with someone who can lovingly listen to you. Many times when I go back and I look at my biggest disappointments, I'm disappointed because it wasn't about my status. It wasn't about my wealth or my health. I wanted to look good and I looked bad in those moments. Let go of the things that don't help us love God and love others more. Third question, what is your kingdom ambition? Ignatius says we live here to join Jesus in his redemptive work in the world by becoming people of love We change the world by loving the people around us. What is your kingdom ambition? Where does God want you to use your love to change your community your family your workplace in our world? Who can help you pursue it because no kingdom ambition can be accomplished alone It needs to be done in community. And so just think about it. What's your kingdom ambition? What's the redemptive drive that God's put in you to use your love for the good of others and tell somebody about it Ask them to hold you accountable and help you pursue it Finally Ignatius named attachment to wealth health long life and status as the most common obstacles to loving God and loving people and I just want you to practice this, and we're, we're going to do this in just a minute as we end. I want you to imagine standing before God and just giving up wealth, health, long life, status, everything that you wanted out of your life for it to go a certain way and look a certain way, for it to be whatever image you imagine in your mind, and just say, here I am with empty hands, God. Will you give me the life you have for me? Not the life I want, but the life that will help me love you more and love others more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're before you because you're everywhere. And at any moment, we can stand in your throne. And God, first of all, I apologize like I have this week, like I've just apologized to the church. I apologize again for not giving you my best, for many times giving you 5% of my best. I'm sorry. But I'm grateful that you're a God who loves me, whether I look good and perform well or whether I fail miserably. Your love never changes, and we're grateful for that. Every one of us need your unfailing love and mercies. And God, I pray that today we just open the hands in our heart and we say, God, here's, here's my desires for wealth. Here's my desires for health. Here's my desires for everything to go the way I want in my story. Here's my desires for status and influence and respect. I don't need those things to love people. Help me to love you with open hands. Help me to love others with open hands. Not just love what they can do for me, but to love them right where they are.